All right, we're in the book of Judges again, and uh, Judges... On Jephthah, we started that last time we met, and uh, we said that it would be at least a two-part series here with uh, Jephthah, and we are in that second part here today. Um, and I just wanted to start off by using an illustration, and uh, there was a story that goes like this. There was a wealthy man who made his fortune in the oil industry, and one day he got really sick, and he lay on his deathbed. And his pastor came to visit him, and the man said, Pastor, if I am healed, I will give a million dollars to the church. Well, sure enough, the man recovered from his illness, and about three weeks went by, and the pastor showed up at the man's house, and he said, uh, you know, back three weeks ago when you lay dying on your, on your deathbed, he said, you made a, a promise that you would give a million dollars to the church, if um, if you were raised up and he says I haven't seen anything yet and the man shook his head and he says wow he says I said that he says I must have been really really sick (laughs) and you know that sometimes is the case isn't it that we make a vow or a promise or something more kind of flippantly and not with the regard or due regard for all the consequences of that and I don't know if that story is true or not I just know that um, there are probably many, many occasions where people make a quick vow before the Lord or before others and really don't intend to ever fulfill that outside of the moment that they make the vow. Uh, sometimes I don't, I don't doubt people make sincere vows, but sometimes a week or two goes by and it's become history and forgotten about and all of that. Well, today we're going to talk about vows and we're going to talk particularly about the vow of Jephthah. Now, I have verses 1 to 11 there on the slide. I meant to update that. Um, It's actually in the end of the chapter. We're going to pick it up around verse 27 when we we do. But you remember the time of the judges, right? That's what we're in. We're in this period of history of Israel, about 400 years, and it covers these events. And by the way, a contemporary book to the book of Judges, if you guys are there Wednesday nights, we've been looking at a survey of the Bible. Anybody remember what book is contemporary with the time of the judges? Ruth, exactly. So the very next book coming up, which we've covered recently anyways, but that book of Ruth covers that time frame. And you know from the book of Ruth that people were not following the Lord with their hearts the way they should. Now, there's both sides of that because the book of Ruth, for example, is really all about the love story of how God took a Moabite woman who had no promise in Israel and by the very fact that she identified with the God of Naomi and the God of Israel, she was grafted in by grace. And I would just say this, that in our unbelief and times of unbelief and times of wandering and all of those things, God is still faithful to dispense grace. And I'm thankful for people like Ruth and and others that are mentioned, and they're sort of bright lights in a very dark time. As you know, Judges 21-25 talks about the sort of the commentary from God's perspective. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And may I say that that appears to be where we're at today in modern day Western culture. We are doing what is right in our own eyes, and it's not necessarily at all right with what God has laid out. And the further we become illiterate in the scriptures and the Bible and further away from God's word as a society, the darker it will get. But there's bright lights in those that choose to live for the Lord in spite of that. And I think, like anything, when you're in a very dark room and you, you light just a little candle or anything like that, it dispels darkness, doesn't it? And it stands out. It really stands out. And uh, I, I think today is a day to shine the light of Christ as never before, really. And in my generation, the Christians that are following the Lord stand out. May you and I be those kind of Christians today. May we be like that. Well, we're going to talk about Jephthah. And talk a little bit about what he he did in passing. And I don't know what your Bible titles it as, but sometimes it's just the vow of Jephthah. The 
my uh, Schofield Bible here says Jephthah's tragic vow, and that's sort of what it implies here. And to set the stage on this, we'll, well, before I read the, the next part, if you read from where we ended last week in verse 11 up to about, eight, about verse 27, you'll find this um, dispute over land. And by the way, that's a dispute in that area of the world that has gone back all the way times before the time of Abraham. And that was no uh, exception here. When Israel came into the land, God divided the land up, told them what they were to have. And this is after the conquest of Joshua. Um, and, he, and they didn't lay claim to certain lands. I mean, matter of fact, they, the, the land of Ammon, which is modern-day Jordan in that realm, was not laid claim to them. And they didn't try to claim it. But yet the Ammonites, who were inhabiting that land of what was Moab and the land of Ammon, um, those, those people were worried that Israel would come and take their land. And so they plotted to fight. And you find in this section there, those verses, Jephthah uh, appeals to the leader of Ammon and uh, basically says that, no, that's not his intention, and they're not doing that, and that the land that they occupied, Ammon, wasn't even theirs to begin with. It was the land of Moab. And so there's this dispute over land. And you see Jephthah, who is a man of faith, but a man who also tries, in this case, to first and foremost exercise a peaceful resolution. And I think that principle is always, the diplomacy is always better if it can be accomplished that way. It's not always the way it ends up. But he extends this sort of olive branch of peace. And he attempts to do that. And it doesn't go over well. They, they reject it. And there's going to now be a war. And Jephthah knows that. And he knows that there's going to be conflict. And so we pick that up in verse 27. It says, Therefore I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. That was the culmination of the whole matter. He basically leaves it with the Lord. And he says, if you come to war with us, remember, you're fighting against God. And I think that's where he leaves it. Well, it goes on uh, in that verse there. It just basically sets the stage for where we are now in this next section on the vow of, uh, of Christ. And by the way, I said peaceful resolution. I think that's always the first approach that we need to take if we can. Because the scripture tells us to do that. And um, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Part of Part of the, the world we live in, and it's a good thing, is that we have people who, who do attempt to make peace first. They don't immediately go to the fight. And there are those that immediately go to the fight, and that doesn't work out very well, does it? In Romans chapter 12, Paul picks up on that and he says, Repay no one evil for evil. In other words, don't just enact vengeance when there's been a wrong perpetrated against you. Uh, Jesus put it this way, forgive those who persecute you, right? And despitefully use you. Um, that's the first thing that Christians should do. And then it says, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I think in Judges chapter 11, you see Jephthah attempting to do that. He really doesn't want to go to war with Ammon, but he ends up in a war and that comes to his door paul goes on to say beloved do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath in other words put it aside for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord and that's what judges eleven twenty seven says that god will have his way he is the great judge and it says therefore if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him a drink for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, we live on a higher plane. We, as believers, we are to uh, not just go out and, and commit an evil deed to enact vengeance against evil. That's not what we're to do. We're to rely on what God has put in place and to overcome with good. And again, I won't read it, but Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes there, Jesus teaches on this same thing. 
And that was what Jesus did. And ultimately, Jesus is the one who shows us the great example of who he was in that um, he didn't just roll over and, you know, and, and do nothing. But Jesus willingly went to the cross to bring peace between God and us. He suffered the greatest of injustices for me and for you. And we are reminded of that, that without the peace that Jesus offers through the blood of his cross, we would never have peace with God. And as men and women and boys and girls throughout our world embrace that message and that peace at a heart level, it often will bring peace within their world too. And we have seen that um, historically. All right, so let's pick it up here. I got a Judges chapter 11, verse 28. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. Then, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon to my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, it's important to note here that Jephthah makes this vow, and it's a rather hasty vow, isn't it? Um, and we, we see that. He, he vows uh, to basically uh, offer up a burnt offering of whatever comes out of the house. That, that he'd, and he had no control over that necessarily. He just does that. And before we get too far, let's just pray and commit this to the Lord as well. Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we are grateful. And Lord, I'm reminded of the importance of vows and the importance of, of doing what we say And also, Lord, the importance of measuring out and counting the cost of those things. And Lord, we ask now you would just teach us to be wise in these days. And thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. For without him we can do nothing. And Lord, without him we would be still at war with you. And we just commit our time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We open up here with this, if you want, point number one. I have a slide somewhere, but I think it's out of order here. But Jephthah's vow, or the vow. You can just say the vow, right? And the vow that is basically um, offered there. And we see in this section where Jephthah says he's going to basically offer up a sacrifice and to the Lord. And in, on its surface, that sounds really good. It sounds like a very spiritual thing to do, right? And sometimes we're quick to make spiritual sort of vows, I guess, or promises without really measuring the cost of those things. Um, that is part of the nature of who we are. We're impetuous sometimes. I, I think probably the disciple that was probably most familiar with those kinds of things was Peter, right? Uh, Peter, and we think of someone who is quick to act and didn't always think about what the consequences were. And sometimes it was a good thing, um, but it didn't necessarily always lead to the best, you know, things. And thankfully, the Lord was there for him no matter what. Peter's the one that when no one else jumped out of the boat, you know, when the waves were tossing here and there, Peter gets out of the boat. He, He was one that was willing to take that step. But he gets out on the waves and then it's like, oh, yeah, now what do I do? Right. And he begins to sink. And he gets those words out. It's really just one phrase, save me, right? Save. (laughs) And the Lord saves him, delivers him from the the waves and the water. Peter's the same one that when he, Jesus is telling them uh, about that cost of discipleship and all of those things. And Peter says, I'm willing to die for you, Lord. And the Lord Jesus looks at him and said, yeah, but you'll deny me first, you know? Tells him that. I'm paraphrasing, but that's, that's basically what happens. And Peter does indeed deny the Lord. In his willingness to die for the Lord, he would very quickly realize that his strength wasn't enough. Later on, he would indeed die for the Lord. And, the, and Jesus even told him that he would, how, in what manner he would die. He said, people will take you and stretch your arms out and take you places you don't want to go. And that's indeed how Peter died, 
died by crucifixion. And, and I say that because we're quick sometimes to make a vow that is even a good thing. Right? I'll live for you, God, but I'll even die for you. And will you? <laughs> That's the question that goes out. As I have mentioned several times, I finished my um, biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And part of that book really just is the heart of a, of a Christian, uh, a pastor, who, who just wrestled with the times in which he was found himself and the evil that was being perpetrated by the Nazis and what was going on in Germany at that time. And, and he wrestled with those things and wrestled with what he needed to do and ultimately wrestling with his own idea of what his life was worth, right? And eventually willingly just giving up his life. I mean, he willingly he didn't have much choice in the gallows. They... They hanged him, but, but nevertheless, when I think about that, um, the description of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it comes from one survivor of that final day, his last day he spent, on, it was on a Sunday, I believe April 5th, if I remember correct, of 1945, and, and he, he spent it there um, giving a sermon to the prisoners out of Isaiah chapter 53, And about how we are healed by his stripes, right? Stripes, by his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. And he preached that. And it was shortly after that that the guards came to him under orders and said, come with us. Which meant, basically, he was going to to his execution. And one said of him as he prayed in preparation for his execution... He prayed as one who knew God and knew that God heard his prayers. What a testimony. And I I just say that sometimes we need to count the cost. And that cost isn't very much when things are going well, but it's very hard when things are poor or times around us and the the evil around us gathers. It It is counting the cost. Well, we find with Jephthah, He makes a a vow rather harshly. Uh, The context of it is interesting. I mean, first of all, um, he kind of goes and he says to the Lord, let me go back to verse 30. uh, It says, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands. Now, this sounds very similar. Like here he is uh, debating with God and sort of laying it out before God, and, and, and I would even say, hoping God comes on board with him. That's kind of the context, isn't it? And sometimes we're like that. Well, we know God is always good. We know he's holy, he's true, he's powerful, he's omniscient, he's all those things, and yet we come to him and we treat him as if he's not. We'd say, Lord, you know, I know your will will be done, but, but if you really are with me, then you'll do this. That's trying to manipulate God. And, that, and that's kind of what Jephthah's doing here. I don't know if that was his intention, but that's how it really appears. He's manipulating God. If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my house, then I, as he goes in the next verse, it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Sometimes when it comes down to it, we hastily give something to God in hopes that somehow God will just turn around and, uh, and listen to us a little better, right? Or be obliged to do that. I, I can just tell you this, the God of the universe who created all things and sustains all things does not need anything from me. He is apart from all that. Now, now he, does he want something from Yes, he wants me. He wants you. He wants us to come in line with him and give him glory. He's the only one that's due that glory. And a life lived for him brings glory. But it's very easy to just say, well, Lord, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give you a million dollars if you'll raise me up. And then you get raised up and you go, uh-oh, that's expensive. Maybe I should do something else. It was like the story of the farmer and he came in one day, he was just rejoicing. He came in from uh, in the morning, his wife had prepared breakfast, and he's all happy. And she said, dear, what, what's, so, what's so good? He said, oh, last night, he said that cow that was to deliver uh, gave birth to twin calves. 
And he says, wow. He says, that just is, that is amazing. And he says, I tell you what, God has just blessed us, and I'm going to give one of those calves to the Lord. And so uh, the calves, you know, did what they did, and they began to get stronger. And then one of the calves got sick and died. And the, one morning the farmer comes in, and he's all sad. And his wife says, what's the matter? And, and he says, well, today the Lord's calf died. It's easy sometimes to give something over to God, but not really intending the cost of it. And sometimes it's easy to do that and then and, do, and not realize the ramifications for it. And we see that here. But the context of this vow and the content of it uh, is a very serious thing because there was no guarantee who or what would come out the door of his house when he returned. And it's interesting, before this, it says the Lord was with him, right? The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. I don't think he had to make a vow. God didn't tell him to make a vow. God didn't say, hey, Jephthah, you need to make a burnt offering. And by the way, God had a process for that. It was to be done in the tabernacle. It was to be done by priests. It was to be done in a way that God had already orchestrated and ordered and given rules about. And all of it pictured a greater sacrifice who was yet to come, which would be Jesus himself, Messiah, the anointed one. And we see that pictured. Well, vows are important. God takes note of them. And I believe that to this very day, vows are extremely important. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's a warning given says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. In other words, sin if you don't do the vow. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. Sometimes it's best not to vow. That's really what it is. That which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And my friends, I would just dare say that that is probably one of the things that man does the best is break vows. How many of them have been sworn into an office of authority or something with their hand on a Bible and then said, I will perform the duties of my office the way I should, and then they go do everything but. Or how many have come to the front of a church somewhere and said, until death do us part, and then have broken those vows. That happens. And I'm not excusing any of it. But I'll tell you, there's probably not a person in this room that hasn't broken a vow somewhere in their their whole time. And if you haven't, amen. But I'll tell you, it's easy to make a promise, whether small or great, and then not fulfill it in the way we should. Beware of that. God warns us. He says the same thing in the book of Numbers. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Solomon later on would say this in Ecclesiastes 5, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. And draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. How many people come through the door of a church or in old times like Solomon in a temple and come through into that area and they are quick to give a sacrifice but not deal with what follows and what that means. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. That's your heart as well. For God is in heaven and you on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? And again, we just see that, that you have this, this vow before God and a very hasty one at that. 
Well, you see the vow promised, and secondly, you see the victory accomplished. Well, in spite of the vow, I don't think that was necessary, we find God being faithful, and he um, gives victory for Jephthah and Israel over Ammon. And we'll read here in these verses. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Arori, as far as Minnith, 20 cities, and to Abel, Karamim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And I would just point out that there is this great victory. And it's a victory attributed to Jephthah because he was their leader. Um, and it was, but it wasn't Jephthah's victory alone. It was the Lord's. It says the Lord delivered them, right, into his hand. And ultimately, that's the victory that we have as well, isn't it? Uh, I'm glad that through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and victory over sin and death when he rose again, that I have victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, right? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to give thanks to him. And I am thankful for that. Because in and of myself, I could never do it. I couldn't have victory over sin. Neither could you. I, I tried for a lot of years in my life before I became a believer to have victory over my sins. I remember I would, I would go uh, to the service and, and, and there I would sit and I would have someone tell me a little moral story or something like that. And I'd think, oh man, I, I need to be better. I need to be a better person. And I would say right there and then, oh, I'm going to be a better person. And then by even sometimes that later on in that day, I was right back to my old sinful deeds. And it was only when I finally understood the strength of that sin and what it was, not only an affront to others, but to God himself, that I realized I needed a Savior. And it was there that I understood Jesus has become my sin bearer. And if I would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I could be saved from my sin. And not just saved from the penalty of it, but the power of it in my life. And part of that new birth, right, the being born again, is that he gives the Holy Spirit to reside in us. And we're sealed unto the day of redemption. And he gives us a new man to follow. And it's really him, but the new man is referring to the regenerated believer. And, and all of a sudden, the same things I had, never had victory over, he gave me victory over in my life. Be careful you don't yield right back to that, because there's an old man too, the old nature. It resides in us too, and it's not eradicated yet. Someday in the very presence of God, there will be no more old man, old nature. But until then, it's going to be a struggle. And I will say, whatever dog you feed is the one that gets stronger, right? It's that simple. We have the victory in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes there, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. In that case, Paul commends the Corinthians um, and he's, he's commending those that are, are submissive, submissive and following. And by the way, I, you look at 1 Corinthians, and Paul deals with a lot of problems in the church. A lot of all kinds of fleshly, carnal problems. You come to 2 Corinthians, and it, it appears that there has been a great repentance in many ways. And Paul talks about that, and that's more of his theme as you go through it. And... I just say this, that there's always room for repentance so long as there's breath in your lungs. And it's a good thing. And God can take what is what stunk, and that's what sin does, it just stinks, and he can make a beautiful fragrance out of, out of a righteous life, out of someone submitted to Jesus Christ. He diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. There's something very powerful when believers are right with God. Wherever they go, they, they leave a trace of their spiritual fragrance. It's a good thing. Wherever you go, do you make it better or worse? Now, I can say this. For those that reject it, it's not the fragrance of life, but the fragrance of death, isn't it? Because their sin abides on them. But... 
for us who follow him, we know that there is life. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about glory, and the glory is not in us, it's in him. It says, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you, for we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure. The gospel is not about boasting about us or boasting about our sin or our new life. Or It's a boast about Christ in a good way. That is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment, but, and he quotes from Jeremiah, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Isn't it great? We can glory in the Lord. And I I can say that. I I think we need to give God glory in, in whatever we do. Um, when things are going well, you know, don't just stop and say, well, yep, must be because of me. Well, you find out that you could be removed really, really quickly and it still would go on because God's in it, you know, if he's in it. And, and I would just say the glory needs to go back to him. It needs to always go back to him because he's the only one to do it. Thankful for that. We see in this last section the vow fulfilled. So God delivers Ammon into the hands of Jephthah in Israel. And now Jephthah remembers what he told the Lord. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to offer up a burnt offering of whatever comes out of my house. Now I don't know what he had in mind. Because I'm assuming he would have had something in mind. Maybe, maybe there would have been uh, a little lamb that would have run out and greeted him. I don't know. Maybe it was a servant that would come out. Um, I, I don't know what he had in mind, other than he said, I'm going to offer up a burnt offering. Now, this is where this passage can be, well, it can be interpreted differently. And uh, again, there are times where you say, well, where the literal sense makes sense, look for no other sense. But sometimes the literal sense doesn't make sense. So we're going to look at that here in the moments that we have remaining. It says, when Jephthah came to his house at Mitzpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing and she was his only child beside her he had neither son nor daughter and it came to pass when he saw her he tore his clothes and said alas my daughter you have brought me very low you are among those who trouble me for I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it so she said to him My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. And so he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Now, reading this on the surface, I would say it does sound like he, off, he said to the Lord, Jephthah said, I'm going to offer a burnt offering of whatever comes out of my house. And his daughter comes out, and he was bound by that vow to go and to offer his daughter a burnt offering. And in the strict, strict rendering of the text, you could come up with that. I, I, di- I lean differently and with others, and this has been a theological debate from the ages, right? Uh, what did Jephthah actually do? And the, the end, the bottom end of the, or the end of the text doesn't tell us exactly uh, the outcome, other than it says that she bewailed her virginity, and that, um, in other words, she, the part of the vow that he made is that she would never have children. In other words, would not have offspring unto him, and she's his only child. And so 
in doing so, Jephthah himself would not have children or have other you know, grandchildren through him. And it, it's quite a vow to, to make and then to perform to know that your line is now going to be cut off. And Jephthah knows that he's made a vow to God and it's important to keep that vow. I'm under the inclination that he didn't offer his daughter as a burnt offering, but rather offered her in the service in the service of the tabernacle. And that was a common practice, from my understanding. I say common, not super common, but it was a, a practice by where women would serve as um, servants at the door of the, you know, outside the tabernacle in the rituals that went on there. And we know that from other portions of scripture that talk about that. And we also know that the God was very clear throughout scripture, from the law to the prophets, that uh, human sacrifice was always wrong. And so I don't think God and Jephthah as well would have, or the priests in the tabernacle would have accepted a human sacrifice. I, I just lay that out because it would have been in violation of the law. It would have been in violation of very clear command that God had given under Moses. And then later that's reiterated in like the book of Jeremiah and other places where other pagan nations around Israel did that. They were not to go near that. In the book of Leviticus, in chapter 18, verse 21, it says, And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech. Now, Molech was this uh, false god of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and others. And it, it basically uh, was an idol um, in, in its, you know, a golden image. And my understanding is that they would actually heat that up in a fire, in the outstretched arms of Molech would be out like this, and they would offer children to Molech in the burning arms of this idol. Hideous what went on. And yet, they were commanded in Israel, don't even do that. Don't go near that. You are never to put your children or your descendants into that. In Leviticus chapter 20, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he has given some of his descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. So God viewed it as defilement and profanity to do such a thing in his holy place, the tabernacle. And if the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the man when he gives some of his descendants to Molech and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man, against his family, and I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Molech. And... Again, the law was very harsh. If you were to offer human sacrifice, and that was going on, and that's a lot of that throughout human history, very sad, um, that, that brought about capital punishment. Whoever did that was to be killed. Now think about that. That's, that's a pretty harsh thing. We do not see evidence of that in Jephthah, in his life, nor in his daughter's life, but rather, I believe, that when Jephthah sees his daughter coming through and, uh, the door and he, and he says, alas, my daughter, the, the word alas means sort of like, oh, you know, it's a, it's a groan, an audible groan that comes out. And he says, I've been brought low, means literally to be brought to his knees. He realizes that he's promised to give to the Lord what comes out. And the, the word offer up can be also consecrate. And so here he is, he says, I've, I've said to the Lord, I'm going to consecrate whatever comes out of the house. And here comes his daughter. And he says, I'm going to consecrate my daughter to the Lord. And I do believe that the provision of that was to give her to the use of those priests and others in the, in the ta tabernacle to help in the services of the tabernacle. And that's what they were to do. They were to be servants. And... Uh, and when he did that, he's, of course, he's brought low. 
Because he realizes everything he just said and did so easily has really made his life change forever, right? He's not going to have descendants that come from him, um, through, not through that daughter. And, and she bewails her virginity. She doesn't bewail the end of her life. The idea is that she understood that she would be a virgin because she'd never get married. And in a day, in a time when arranged marriages were everything, uh, the father would never arrange a marriage for her because he had consecrated her to the Lord as a servant. So I think that makes sense. I'm not trying to lighten it. Uh, the other option would be hard to reconcile with Scripture uh, exactly in that way. It doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't record the bad things that men do. They, he does. The Lord records all things. But we do see that in the keeping with the type, there was provision for a burnt offering, but also for someone to be offered to the Lord on be, in that burnt offering on behalf of them. For instance, Isaac and Abraham, right? He goes up to Mount Moriah. He goes to offer his son, his only son. He has the wood. He has the knife raised. He's ready to kill his son because God told him to kill his son. And then God provides a ram, a lamb in his place. And you see the substitutionary sacrifice. The lamb, the male ram, takes the place of Isaac, a picture of the gospel. And that provision was seen throughout scripture. Um, For instance, when Jesus was eight days old, it says, when eight days were completed, Luke chapter 2 here, says, for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord or consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Now, was Jesus, the the baby Jesus, offered as a sacrifice? No. There were... The provision of the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Two birds took the place of the infant who was being consecrated to the Lord. Again, sounds weird, you know, because we don't do that today and all that. But it was God's method of a picture of a substitute who would also, to make us holy or consecrate. Now, Jesus was already holy, but to bring a male child to the Lord and say, I'm giving him to the Lord, something else had to suffer and die. In this case, two pigeons or two turtle doves. And we see that throughout Scripture. We see that in the Passover. If you were in the, at the time of the Exodus and you have a time where the angel of death was to come and the only way the judgment of God would pass over a household was if they had taken a lamb, killed that lamb in such a way that it bled out, and then taken the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of their house. And the Lord said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. And again, we have no scientific explanation of how that can happen. It wasn't a natural event anyways. It was a supernatural event. <clears throat> But the aspect of trust and faith saved people. They took what God said, they believed it, they did it, and the act of their faith in that way of trust saved them. Something else had to die to be judged for them, and they weren't judged. And again, throughout Scripture you see that, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ who took your place and my place at the cross. God's holy lamb. God who would go and for all the broken vows we've ever made and every sin that we've ever committed and will commit, he went and he was nailed on the cross for me and you. I do believe that Jephthah's daughter pictures for us really that which is to be offered to the Lord in the sense of a sacrificial service. And the New Testament picture of that is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. 
Paul writes here, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Not, not a burnt offering, but a living sacrifice. Wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, we are not our own. <laughs> we are his. And when we come to that, it's that cost of discipleship and understanding that in reality, it's, it's the idea of taking up your cross and following him following him when jesus talks about taking up our cross and and following him um, prior to that he says we need to deny ourselves look what he says in matthew 16 24 then jesus said to his disciples if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself when jephthah offered his daughter for the service of god he was denying himself Every hope that he ever had as that little child had bounced on his knees over the years and then grown up into a a young girl. And every bit of hope he had as a father to see grandchildren come and, and their descendants and the hope of a name being passed on was cut off. It was a very serious matter. No re no wonder there was great sadness and it brought him to his knees. No wonder she wailed in the sense of mourning for her virginity, and that she would be a virgin, never being married, and she herself would never have children or grandchildren. Because of a vow taken lightly, maybe. But a serious vow. A vow made lightly. It wasn't taken lightly. It was made lightly. He says, let him deny himself. That's the hardest part of discipleship, isn't it? Following the Lord is denying ourselves. Denying ourselves in a world that says it's all about you. We are in the selfie generation, right? Everything's about me. And no, it isn't. It's about him. It's about the glory of God. And we need to deny ourselves. And that sometimes requires us to do harsh things. It it may require us to go from the comforts of where you live now to a very harsh climate somewhere else where you're living in a jungle climate or something like that. We have missionaries that are raising support right now, um, the Raychards, who are, are planning in God's will to go to Papua New Guinea. Now, Papua New Guinea is not a hospitable place, even if you're living in a in more modern times. Um, we have dear friends who are missionaries there, and they had contracted malaria right off when they got there, and they were there for two full terms, never once in their family did they have everybody free of malaria it says they 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 told me that every single time they got you know every week there was someone else that had a fever that would come on and malaria is one of those things you chase you know as a parasitic disease it's just you chase it and control it but it controls you sometimes And, and and you go from those things and when do you ever count the cost to say i'm going to go to a place that maybe Every other week, my child is going to have a terrible fever and be in misery because they have malaria or even suffer death. But it's worth it because there's people that need to hear about Jesus. Deny ourselves to take up the cross. The cross is an emblem of death and suffering. And, in, and when we find out that truth in that, we embrace it. We should anyways. It's not just bearing a, a burden, but rather understanding our position. We're dead in, in Christ. The goals and dreams and aspirations doesn't mean God just throws those all out, makes your life miserable. Often he gives us the desires of our heart when we follow him. And he makes our heart come in line with what's good and acceptable. But there's times where we just sit back and we realize there's a cost to this walk. And this walk is temporary here. It's not a long walk. Oh, maybe you think a few years here and there, but you know, even if you live to be 110 It's just a few days and a few steps on this earth to do that. Jesus went on to say, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The the most fulfilled life you can have is one of service to him. And in reality, if indeed Jephthah uh, offered his daughter as a servant in the tabernacle, It was the most fulfilling life he could ever have. And I say that because it really, God took note of it. He took note of it because Jephthah denied himself in the process of that, honored the vow that he had made, although he probably regretted it 
at the time. And the willingness of his daughter to go forward with it shows that there was a serious aspect of the, of the faith in their household. She doesn't go, oh no, what did you do, dad? No, she says, father, whatever you've done before the Lord, now that he's delivered you, I will, I will do it. I will do it. There's a willingness on their part. There's a little hint in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that spells something out. This is the hall of faith. That's what we often call it. Where you have the, the illustrations of those people that by faith they followed God. And I always found it hard to reconcile that in verse 32 of Hebrews 11 it says, And, and what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and What's the next one? Jephthah. How in the world did Jephthah end up in Hebrews chapter 11? I don't think it's because he sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering. I think it's because he ultimately gave himself over to God and others, and he followed God in faith. The name that was going to be cut off if he had sacrificed his his daughter, because remember the law said your name's to be cut off. It's not cut off. It's in the Bible forever. Aren't you glad that no matter what you did as an offense to God, there's grace and mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ? Amen. And aren't you grateful that there's a name that you now have? It's really the name of Christ stamped on you as a Christian. And you know what? He gives us a name that's eternal. A new name. Your name won't be cut off. If you don't have children in this world, whatever. If you're following the Lord, it's forever. Isn't that great? And I'm so thankful for that. Let's live for the Lord today. Let's be careful what we vow. But let's also take vows seriously as well. Lord, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, I pray as we consider these things today that, Lord, you would just again teach us as only you can to to honor you in all things and to understand that there's a serious aspect of discipleship and the following of Jesus Christ. It's not easy, but it's worth it. And Lord, I thank you for Jephthah and, and the fact that he's written down in the book of Hebrews as a man of faith. And Lord, I thank you that you are God and you are the one who is able to be lifted up in the midst of a very dark time and help us to be people of, of this book, people of you that would follow you with our whole hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.